You want to give a gift to someone this Christmas time, but they already have all of the Restless merch. Well, first off, I doubt that you should check the new Christmas drop. But what are you to do if it is true? Thankfully, there's the perfect gift for the Restless Stan in your life. A Patreon membership. For as little as $3 a month, you can provide countless hours of content where we talk about Mark Driscoll, New Calvinism, and even that one time Matt kicked a girl in the face. Go to patreon.com slash the restless podcast and you can see what else is available for those who sign up. Make sure the restless fans in your life have a very restless Christmas. This is Restless. Welcome back to the Restless Podcast. This is your podcast home for the postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. I'm your host, Matt, joined as always by Pastor Michael. Pastor Michael, we often in the winter, we we get in conversations where there's mega nuance and massive charity needed, right? This is this is our thing right here in Winsome Winter. And today we are discussing something like that. How are you doing today? Yeah, yeah doing well. Uh, very excited for the conversation. Uh, one of the things we brought up a lot over the past couple of years is some of the just the bankruptcy in the typical um, political takes of the Young Restless Reform, the Gospel Coalition, um, these types of groups, and uh, this desire to, you know, see more robust thinking come about on that subject. So um, a couple of years ago, we had on uh, the guests that we have on today, uh, Stephen Wolf, and we talked about Two Kingdoms Theology and some other things. And when he was here, he told us, hey, I'm working on a book on uh, the case for Christian nationalism. And we said, well, when it's done, we'll have to have you back to talk about it. And so here we are. So Stephen, mm, welcome yeah. back to the podcast. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we are excited to discuss it. We have published a book that was way, way less interesting or important. We just gathered all of the reformed confessional statements on the civil magistrate and put them out so that people could see mm. here is what um, a place maybe we need to begin because I think we're so far from it. And what is interesting to me about your book and your whole project is you're seeking to apply the kind of traditional and we think biblical Protestant categories and apply it in our modern political theory. And that's obviously turned out to be a pretty controversial project for you and your book, though. Um, the book is is a serious book. I just it's just out of my reach right now, but it's a 400 page book. Will you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write a book on Christian nationalism today? Yeah, I mean the um, so I think kind of what you guys said is that there uh, that there there are these old uh, ideas uh, that have you know they're old ideas and they've been around a long time. And you guys said you, you put these in a confession. You like you have the get all the confessional done. There's confessional documents related to the civil magistrate. You put them on one book, and that's a, that's kind of handy because if anyone says you're a heretic because you believe that the magistrate should care about religion, well, you just say, well, here you go. <laughs> um, exactly. And one of the reasons in the book why I I quote um, dozens of 
reformed, you know, you know, well-regarded reformed theologians and political thinkers is that when, when ultimately I am accused of being a heretic for this or that thing, you just say, well, that means Calvin's a heretic, Turretin's a heretic, Althusi's a heretic, and everyone's a heretic. Um, so yeah, that, that's really good. But uh, I, I mean, I wanted to, to write this book because whenever I, almost always when you read uh, political theory, Christian political theory or Christian political theology, it, it, it usually lacks a certain method uh, that was common within the early, early modern period, which is to be very clear what question you're answer, answering, to be uh, clear what the principle is, uh, to, to be clear how you would apply it or in, in matters of prudence. And there's a certain method. And so I really wanted to approach Protestant political thought uh, and make a case for a more classical approach through this older method. And so that's why the book in part is, is 400 something pages. I mean, that's, that was common uh, hundreds of years ago to write a book that size. And uh, it's because I, uh, I try not to be too painful, <laughs> but there's times when I have to, you know, here's the syllogism. And, and uh, so that, that was one approach or one reason is I wanted to, I wanted to introduce, or I, I guess reintroduce an, uh, an older method to uh, trying to approach these things. And I, I think we should probably get into method and why I didn't quote scripture all the time. Um, you yeah, guys but, might've seen, you oh, guys might've seen that. It's that, on my list of questions. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 we'll get to that. And, uh, you know, oops, I forgot, you know, no, that, that was not, <laughs> I just forgot to, that's why I didn't do it. Um, no, there, there's a reason for it. Um, uh, oh, and, so, and so you, I, oh, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to go into why I use the term, but if you, have yeah, that's great. On. Let's let's go. That's exactly what's going to be my question. You, okay. you call the, you frame this, uh, political theory as christian nationalism and that's yeah, obviously yeah. the topic of the book so so what is what is christian christian nationalism uh well I, yeah let's let's go back a little bit so the 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 reason why i chose christian nationalism is this and i should start by saying that i i recognize that in the 17th century you're not going to open a book by turd or you're not by althusius is not saying christian nationalism no one's no one's really using these terms it's kind of a 19th century thing uh, that the term Christian nationalism itself was, generally speaking, a positive thing as as presented until recently. Uh, but the reason the reason why I chose nationalism is not to somehow fuse 19th century German nationalism with or French nationalism with Christianity, but that I think that in our present moment, especially in the West, we need to to be kind of reinvigorated for our own earthly and heavenly good. And I think that comes from uh, first identifying what what is a nation, and then seeing yourself, and then then finding yourself in a nation, um, and then rallying around your people to to seek those goods. Um, and and so I, this is what I think is lacking in a lot of the, theonomic thought, and I think it's lacking in obviously in kind of the neo Anabaptist presentations you see from people like Russell Moore. Um, and so th this was a way to say what 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 actually springs people to action for for their good, and by there I mean not just their personal, but it, their their community and, and nation. And it is a sort of I, I so that's why I call it nationalism. I think it's what it's what we need. Um, it's uh, to 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 kind of bring us back. Like the, the emphasis in the book is on like the on the human will and human action. And uh, kind of collective uh, identification, and then uh, and then um, 
and then asserting your good, which I think all that's consistent with the, the classical Protestant tradition. I think it's more of a, the, the innovation is not so much in the principles, but in the, uh, in it's, it's more in the emphases. So it's, hmm. it's kind of, um, it's trying to tackle a very modern problem, uh, to get us actually back to, I think the older principles of classical political thought. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, one of the things that, you know, I find often in kind of the typical or maybe not even typical, but just most political takes today. And then I find just, I don't know, disheartening about conversation on how to move things forward politically in various ways is that it is often uh, very pie in the sky. It's very um, like, well, here's this ideal and now that's what I want. Uh, but what I hear from you, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, um, is that you are really going from, hey, this is where we're, we actually are, right? We're, this is this is actually the place that we're in, um, you know, as the church culturally, you know, in the West. Uh, and so this is what it actually looks like then to uh, move the ball forward. Um, am I right in hearing that? Um, yeah, I mean, there is, yeah, there are sections where I discuss our, our, sta- our state now. Um, I, I mean, in particular, I think it's in my, cultural Christianity. I have a, a chapter. Um, I, I, yeah, it's like, yeah, like the, our current state in, in the United States, it's, it's not, it's not normal. Uh, I mean, it's the, the, the idea that you don't have any sort of religious instruction within public schools is weird historically. And it's actually fairly new. There's still people living today who pray, who learned English, reading the Bible and prayed and there was prayer and as led by the teacher or over, you know, whatever the intercom, I guess. And they're still, and they're old now. And so now we're in most generate our generations now that are living for the most part, didn't were uh, raised in a, in an extremely secularist environment, not just secular, but secularist as in that's the governing principle, which is that there's no religion in public life uh, and institutional public life. And so, yeah, it's just extremely weird. And that's why I think so many, that's why sometimes I, I I say that the when people say, well, Baptist political thought rejects all this stuff. And then it's like, well, so you mean that Baptist political thought began in from the Warren court in the 50s and 60s? Like, so it's that that's where so you, so Earl Warren is your chief political theologian Baptist. I mean, um, no, I mean, I don't think any of the Baptists who wanted religious liberty in the past would would, would definitely prefer a Christian society that was maybe non-institutionally aligned, but still was broadly Christian in its mm. self-conception, uh, not something that is like radically secularist and now increasingly becoming anti-religion or anti-Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that answers the question. Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah. I don't exactly start from there. Uh, part, part of the, the what I want to do from in the book is to establish the right principles. So I say, I say I say things like you can punish heretics. That is permissible that you punish, not necessarily for the heresy, but for the damage or for the the uh, um, for the sort of harm that could happen to people's mm-hmm. souls. So that's I mean, it's permissible, but it, but, it, but that doesn't mean you have to do it. It's mm-hmm. something that you would uh, if it's if it's appropriate. So you have to establish the principles, and I think in our case, in that case. Um, our situation probably wouldn't want to do that, but hmm. uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to look at our situation. What are the firm principles? Then how do you apply those principles to achieve the actual end of them? So uh, in light, in light I want to get to. Oh, sorry, I want to get to your kind of three-step argument that I think 
will help people understand even where this idea of punishing heretics, right? Because again, we live in a time where that is considered heretical, right? To our our modern secularists, like the way the place we live, that's like the one heretical idea. Okay, but, but well, let, me, ask, let me just say though that that's clearly not the case because there are heresies out there. They're just not theological. They're social correct. heresies yeah. and that we've all even recently experienced. And so there's uh, there are these social heresies. I know we're not going to get into this, but I don't want to get specifics. But you all know there's there's there are social dogmas that you can violate, and there's punishments for them. So anyone, so if anyone says, and maybe this is where you're going with it. But if anyone says, oh, there's no, uh, yeah, it's all bad. Well, no, you, everyone takes part in some kind of, uh, system, some kind of um, informal system that socially damages people for saying or believing things that are considered, um, yeah. that, that are social. It, it, so I promise. Yeah. I did see the Kanye West interview that, uh, okay. so that <laughs> if that's what you mean, but, uh, um, but what I want to ask is before we get to this principle, cause you do make a three-step argument for how how the the Christian magistrate should um, promote true religion in the book that I think is a central, you know, I think if that argument holds, I think your book, it's, it becomes working out the principles becomes essential and important. But I want to ask, so if, if we agree, and again, there's, of course, there's lots of debate, everyone's going to review your book. If we agree that there is a, this, this is part or at least an expression of classical christian political beliefs i think i st- we still i'm going to ask the pragmatic question can is the can the term christian nationalism is that really is that term savable in in our discourse at this point because obviously you know when people hear christian nationalism they just said oh did you forget the white part right you know like they're they make an assumption right it it's a vilified statement, as you've mentioned in our modern discourse. And so my question is a, just a pragmatic one is, can we, can you, a part of the case for Christian nationalism needs to be, we need to reclaim even the term, right, from this very negative view that it's been um, given. That would not be, most people don't understand classical Protestant thought or how this would really late to that right is it does that does my question make sense can we can we reclaim the term can you reclaim the term successfully i guess is the question uh well i i don't anywhere i don't anywhere state that that you that you need to uh that your political that your public identity has to be christian nationalist okay i i, I would be just as happy if someone read the book and then said no i believe in classical protestant I'm a classical Protestant political thinker, and uh, and then and then went from there. So, and if, if they didn't call themselves Christian nationalists, I'm not. I'm not trying to, you know. It, it's like it's like people think that I'm starting to begin this movement that's centered around a term. I don't think I ever actually said that. I think if you if you if you agree with me that there needs to be a, like a reinvigoration of the the our spirit. Um, as as Christian peoples throughout the world, then uh, then I think that would be more Christian nationalist. But but most but the thing is the majority of the book, uh, the majority of the book is just consistent with classical Protestant thought. So uh, I mean so it, it's um 
I guess if you took the, if you agreed with the book as a whole, then you're Christian nationalist. But if you agree with 95% of it, then that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian nationalist. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think that the, the term, uh, can be, uh, I, I think it, it's, it's difficult because the, the way that the, the way that people want to destroy the ideas is to destroy the, is to, is to make uh, associate with the term, the term with bad things, and then associate that term with the whole of a, of a thought. And then it damages mm-hmm. everything within the whole. Uh, and just like if, yeah, and I, I've heard, I haven't heard anyone yet say they've read the book and they agree with 100% of what's in there, which would be weird because there's a lot of stuff in there. I say a lot. It's 500 pages. Um, I'm not even sure I agree with every, everything I write. <laughs> I wrote. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, let's not start a movement. Let's not pursue our, our goals. So I'm not trying to like, re- re- you know, um, like so, back backpedal the the begin of a movement, but I I would but the point being that I would I, I would have no problem with someone saying, look I I think this book is good I agree with ninety five percent of it I just don't really like the term Christian nationalism for this and that reason mm-hmm. but hey yeah. if you want but I mean if if you are an advocate for civil magistrates that will enforce true religion in some regard some sense uh, then. Great, that's a win. If you read my civil law chapter and believe that we can have Sabbath laws and blasphemy laws, then okay, that's a win for me. If you read the last chapter and you, you recognize there is a gynocracy, um, dang it, and I'm going to dismantle it, then I that's a win for me as well. Yeah. Um. So anyway, um, let's just leave it at that. I I think it's really interesting, you know, as I've as I've watched, you know, the the arguments online about your book. We're in this time where in you know reformed and classical protestant circles retrieval right theological retrieval is the like big thing everyone wants to do just not this kind that's the as i've as i've noticed the kind of theological retrieval you're doing is that's the kind that we're we're not allowed to do or think about um which is which is interesting and so i think that the i uh i don't know which question i want to ask first let me ask about this question so Let's go to what I consider to be one of the heart, the heart argument, maybe the heart syllogism at the big at, at your book, right? You have it's a it's a premise and then it's an argument, right? And this is where I think this is the controversial point where if someone is wondering if they agree with you or not, it's that the magistrate should promote true religion. The next the next premise I don't think is controversial to anyone listening to us. Christianity is the true religion and then of course your conclusion is the civil magistrate should promote the christian religion so i think what's actually controversial for the people who are listening to us and probably most christians today is this question of should the magistrate promote the true religion i think that that question obviously in our secular times that's the question that is the that's maybe the heart of what is the controversial point from where you're reasoning? Can you can you um explain why that is true? Why that is um even a Protestant um conception of the magistrate? Yeah, uh, I just have to say one of the frustrating things about the the reviews uh, in the uh, the book so far is none of them have have actually dealt with the arguments that I give in the book um, for that. So I think it's. I think I give like 12 or maybe it's nine. Yeah. I, I don't remember what it is, but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of got a, 
I, they're, they're short, you know, they're like, they're, they're brief arguments, but I try to make them as logical as I can. Um, and I'm actually trying to, I'm flipping the book, trying to find them right now. Um, of course I can't find any of them, but the, but I, I give, oh, here we go. So I get, I give several arguments. It's on page is 187 through 192. Um, so, and, and, uh, I mean, I, they're, they're, they're kind of, com they're compact and all that, but yeah. So the, the way I, I, what I say is that, uh, is that the major premise is essentially the true religion is something that civil government ought to protect and promote. So that's the major premise. And the minor premise is that true Christianity is true religion. And so you follows from there logically that, that Christianity is, is the, is what they ought to promote. So the, the, the key question is, well, is the, is the first premise true? Like you said, is the major premise true? And I make several arguments uh, for that. Like, so I think I mean one of the one of the, the the main ones I think is that well, you in order to have like the civil government has an interest in a a well ordered people. So a, a people whose soul, a people with a um, good conscience before God, uh, with with a, and redeemed by grace, uh, those are the sort of people that you would want. As a government, um, and I think any rational person um, would would want th those sorts of people because that would make a well-functioning and uh, a good um, people uh, that not only to obey the laws and also to to pursue their good even in earthly matters. And so, in that sense, civil government has an interest in encouraging um, some sort of uh, public true religion uh, in that regard. Uh, when I'm, I mean, another one, another one is if, if you think of uh, Imagine if the civil government knew, in principle, knew nothing but earthly goods, nothing but earthly things, didn't have any conception of heavenly things at all. Well, that means to the mind of the government, to the cognizance of the government, the government would have, would have, uh, would think that really the highest good is earthly life, right? So the only thing then, in principle, that the civil government should act upon is for earthly things. And in fact, you getting your mash and eating and getting collecting all this stuff in earthly life and storing up everything in your, in your storehouse would be the end of uh, the government, which is kind of what life is now, nowadays in secularist world, isn't it? So, yeah. um, and so my, my point is that, well, no, that, that has to be wrong because that means civil government is, is actually doing things to the detriment of the people or would have to in principle, which is a, to me, seems like a contradiction that God would, uh, institute government that doesn't have the sort of knowledge in order to encourage people to um, do what they ought to do and, and, and uh, or to prevent harm. So, so in that sense, I think civil government would have to have some cognizance of true religion in order to promote it and encourage it so that uh, even earth, even in the, like the principal things that civil government should occupy itself with, they can still direct people like ordered people to those things. And so that the, earthly is ordered properly so that it doesn't destroy them that that kind of that so i mean again you can see these other arguments i have i mean also you think about like the, the people themselves institute government and they institute government for their good and if they if the government is is by the people it's of the people by the people for the people if that's the case and these people are a christian people then what and and they and it's for them why wouldn't they institute a government that would be for them, not only with regard to their earthly life, but their heavenly life as well. Wouldn't they also, in seeking their good, why do you found a government? Why do you establish, institute civil civil government, civil laws? Well, it's for your good. 
so it, it just, it, uh, the people then themselves would desire their good, would institute a government that, that would then act for their heavenly good as well. So now, now, I'll, now I'll say what I'm not saying. Uh, what I'm not saying is that the civil government can administer the sacraments, mm. that they can preach the word. Uh, I deny that they can tell the church really what to do in a lot of, uh, um, when it comes to spiritual matters. Um, uh, the, the government cannot force you to believe. They can't, uh, cannot establish a law that says you must believe in Christ. They cannot uh, put you in line and say, do you believe in Christ? And if you say no, then you're punished. Uh, there's nothing like that. Um, and so because, because the gospel is a matter of persuasion and civil law is a matter of compulsion. And so that those are, you can't compel someone to faith in principle. It's not just a matter of like, it won't work. No, it's like, it, what doesn't work in principle? Um, and so I'm not saying that, but what, what the civil government can do is its jurisdiction is all outward things. It can, uh, it can, it can, it can restrain and punish the things that, that would, it, it can, well, yeah, it, uh, it, it can restrain and punish the things that are around, basically around sacred things. So the idea being that uh, you can you could forbid businesses from opening on Sundays to, in order to to in order to ensure an undisturbed Sunday, so they can people can keep the Sabbath. Um, the government cannot say you will keep the Sabbath because ultimately keeping the Sabbath is a matter of heart. I, I mean, it's action as well, but ultimately it's a matter of heart. So you can't actually you can't force people to do that, but. But you can remove things around it that actually prevent someone from from that. And the same thing with like blasphemy, blasphemy laws and her, uh, punishing heretics. <clears throat> you're not punishing them simply because they have the belief. Uh, you're not punishing them because um, it might harm them themselves and their soul. Uh, you're not punishing them in order to reform them. Uh, I mean, that Augustine kind of affirms that actually, but. But yeah, but I don't believe that. So you're not punishing heretics to to correct them, um, but you are uh, trying to remove that person from influence in society. Uh, and I also generally just you, you don't want uh, anyone to think that it's acceptable, so that it questions the normalization of Christianity. So that's another way. It's a pedagogical tool to normalize uh, Christianity. And if someone got away with it freely, um, then it would call that into question and you know, within a generation or two, we'd have what we have today. So um, anyway, I've been talking for like 10 minutes, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, it's, no, it's great. I think that, <laughs> I think again, once again, it's this, you know, again, obviously in our modern day, people are, are very uncomfortable with the idea of punishing blasphemy or whatever. But I think what is, is so notable is one, there are certainly kinds of speech that are punished today in the West. And two, it was so not notable for most of Christian history, right? Like it is, it was, you know, very normative. And so if it's, um, it's, it's not the kind of thing that would surprise you. So Michael, I'll let you ask questions, but I want to ask one more um, that I think definition will help people understand the pro his pro the project here is, so what, what is a, then a Christian nation? Can you def just define these when you bring these two things together, what makes a Christian nation? Because I think one of the things that is helpful um, uh, is you you our modern conception. Most modern conceptions of nation are tied to the nation state, right? This hmm. you know post this kind of this very modern sense, and you kind of are trying to yeah help give a different 
um, understanding of nation and, and what it would be yeah. make for that mean for that nation to be Christian. So, yeah. So th- when people think Christian nation, they think that it's like the, the imminentized eschaton that somehow we've brought heavenly life down to earth and now it's instituted and, or with some imminentized and, and, uh, and, yeah, and the earthly and, and the old has gone away and all that. But that's that's not at all what what I'm what I'm saying. I don't think anyone really ever thought that. So, but a, a Christian nation, the way I describe it is I begin by describing a, a Christian family as a, um, as something analogous to the Christian nation. So the Christian family is a natural thing fundamentally. Fundamentally, it's a natural thing. You have man, woman. And uh, kids or expecting kids. That's like the marriage, the family generally, right? So uh, that, that's just the natural side of being a family. And there's all, all sorts of things that come with that just by nature. It's a very sharing kind of a communal. It's almost essentially communist in a way um, within the household. Uh, there's different uh, rules that, roles that each each person has. There's hierarchy between man, woman, and, and, the, and parents and children and all that. Uh, but then that's all just natural to it. That doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, those would all apply to you. It's not as if suddenly you become a Christian. Now everything, oh, now it all, now it's all coherent. No, there's by nature, that's what it is. So if your non-Christian neighbor uh, family, neighboring family were, were to become Christian, in what ways would that radically, in what ways would that alter that family? Well, it wouldn't suddenly be, oh, we have to get remarried. Uh, it doesn't mean that, oh, now you, now my kids are actually mine. Um, it wouldn't change the the natural hierarchy that's that's built into the, the family. It wouldn't change any of that, any of those things, but it would, of course, change it as a whole because it would be a Christian family, um, which means that they'd have Christian practices. They'd go to worship together. They'd worship as a family. They'd they'd forgive one another. Christ. They would pray for one another. They pray with each other. So there'd be there'd be an introduction of practices. There'd be uh, the correction of bad practices, and. Um, and in, in that sense, it would become the natural family has been Christianized, but instead of thinking of as fundamentally altered, it's actually been in a way perfected. Uh, so grace perfects the nat- nature, doesn't destroy it. Uh, and so th- that's that's the family. Um, again, it's like grace assumes the natural principles of the family and then perfects it um, by by uh, orienting it to you know the kingdom of God. Uh, and so I think the nation's the same way. Uh, it's, it's the, the way that nations form and the way they have their cohesion, uh, is, is according to nature or natural principles. Uh, there's particularities that, uh, I'm, yeah, there's particularities among each nation, um, uh, you know, across the board from different languages, a different way, ways people dress to different vocational skills and, and, uh, all sorts of things that, that are different. But in becoming Christian, they don't suddenly adopt like this revolutionary gospel culture that is universal. They don't. They don't uh, instantly um, become essentially the same. They don't. They don't. They, they don't uh, start speaking in this uh, introduced gospel language that can be understood by all Christians all across the world. There, there's none of that thing. Uh, but there are, of course, uh, every single aspect of life, just in the family, has been then, in a way, altered modified, augmented, however you want to use, uh, or I, I like to say adorned, um, adorned or perfected by grace, uh, which doesn't, which assumes nature, natural principles and particularities, but then orients them properly, uh, corrects bad practices. And uh, it's, 
and so that that's that's the idea of a Christian nation. So just think of like a, again like a Christian family, um, and j- just like like you could have, I mean, just think of um, like England. It's hard to say it's a Christian nation now, but like clearly, you know, a few hundred years ago, you could say it's a Christian nation. And then juxtapose that with a place like Geneva, which is kind of a Christian city state, uh, speaking French. And uh, there were, even though they had similar doctrine, um, they there were still different, very different uh, people groups. And this was actually, I mentioned this in the book, that the 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 exiles, the Marian exiles and other exiles that would go to cities on the continent of Europe in the 16th century, they they faced despite the fact that they had a, a, a lot of overlap in in theology and, and they're Protestant, uh, they faced a lot of Trump problems between the 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 various differences among just you know your just your different European I guess ethnicities. There are problems in Strasbourg, Basel, and uh, um, Geneva. There are problems, and um, the, the point being, I'm not, you know, I guess we could get into like ethnic conflict, but but the, the point being is that that is not that, but that there were these differences, despite the fact that they were very similar, and the the fact that they were Christians didn't extinguish that difference, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't. Um, and because, because a nation itself is something that's can, can, is particularly kind of has its distinctives, um, but it's perfected in in Christ. So there we go. Yeah. I think that, right. Obviously the fact that the nation still, you know, that there's still conflict, that there's still hostility, right? Okay. Yeah. That is a, a result of sin, but the fact that there are differences is good, right? It's, the human yeah. experience is a wide and big thing. And I think it is, you know, I just think that it is unsurprising that the gospel as it um, permeates a culture, permeates a nation, permeates a group of people, it will in it will take root in with some different expressions, right? There are certainly, um, you know, what, you know, if we think of families, all three of our families probably do family worship in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, we we attend churches that, you know, may be similar, but we're all in geographically different places. So they there are different times, right? There are these there are differences. What we do afterwards, you know, what we do to prepare, right? There, these are differences that if the three of us suddenly had to go to church together, we would have to negotiate, right? And it it doesn't mean that those differences are more important than faith in Christ, right? The fundamental um, revelation of God and that doctrine, but it, they are things that are, would become immediately apparent to all of us, right? That, you know, mm-hmm. and so I actually think that, yeah, this kind of organic um, idea of a nation is helpful. I think it also makes me wonder how, because you're 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 proposing a big um, revision to American or Western cultural life, and it's yeah. Again, I, I mean, I I shouldn't I shouldn't jump there because I know the end of your book describes America is not lost, and um, we can come there towards the end why you think so. But Michael, sorry, I won't. So I won't ask about that now. Michael, what up? Um, what do you want to ask about as we continue? 
Yeah, well, if we just stay on this topic, kind of um, at least for just a little while, um, because Great. I think you know, I one of the things that you know I did in, in you know preparing for this interview, I did I wanted to get through the book, but there's no, I got it just you know less than a week ago, and so mm-hmm. um, I was like, there's no way I'm getting through this all this week, and so um, I did read through it, but I did ask them um, some folks uh, that you know are either connected to it through our Patreon or other places that have either. Uh, read the book or, you know, are very interested in this discussion if they had any questions. And one of the things that seems to be coming up a lot, um, both, you know, just generally online and in critiques of the book, but then what I got from a lot of people um, was you have a particular way of defining ethnicity in the book and talking about this, you know, the the kind of, you know, distinction between um, different, you know, ethnicities. and And this brings up for a lot of people a concern that, that can be used by some kind of, you know, uh, racist worldview to section people off based on, you know, modern conception of race. And I'm just wondering uh, if you could just, you know, kind of talk a little bit more about what we've just been talking about then, the, you know, kind of natural group differences and what that looks like, maybe, you know, again, outside of the modern American, very racialized, highly racialized view of things. Yeah. Uh, so my my approach to um, ethnicity is, uh, I, I think you have you have to understand you have to read the book and, and understand the method. So if I was going to do a like cultural geography, I could do this top ground look or you know top down look where I say, well, this people people group was here, that people group was there, and you can draw like these fuzzy borders between all that. But but I, what I try to do is that what I call a phenomenological method, which is that people have to just think about their own experiences and reflect upon uh, their what, what their you know what their people group is. It's easy to be kind of enmeshed in it where you never actually think about it because what is familiar is often just so familiar you don't even realize it's there really until it's gone. So it's like a, if if you go to a foreign country and you're experienced foreignness, then you suddenly it just it, that foreignness shows that you're kind of reveals the familiar and then you get back off the plane like oh back in america uh, or whatever uh there's like this certain relief that you're back home there's a familiarity you feel it it's this phenomenological it's like a sort of experience that that's kind of what i was getting at um because i think we're we're so uh in our this is very kind of like you know capitalistic i don't know i don't know uh in in this it's it, we're we're so easily distracted and and uh by consumption and other things. We don't actually think about these things, but um, yeah. to get to the race thing directly. So I, what's, what's actually very frustrating about this to me is that I, in the book, I very clearly say that I'm not talking about race. Yep. Like I, I explicitly say uh, when I, um, I, in fact, not even about race, but I, I, I disassociate genetics and DNA from ethnicity and people don't like that. They think it's weird. Um, I, but but what what I do is say that look we it's it's not as if like I can go to one of you guys and say hey let's take these DNA tests and then we can look at the chart and see if we're the same ethnicity I mean that doesn't make any sense like you and I like you guys and, and me could could can get along and talk and have an interesting conversation we could probably accomplish things if we wanted to I don't know if you guys can do any building but if we wanted to build something together we could probably do it pretty good if we had some skills we have the, you know the prerequisite similarities where we could pull it off um we can complete projects and deliberate and do all these things we have these similarities but let's then let's say it shows up that wait i you know wolf is like 
uh, 25% Italian. And then he's also Scottish, but, but, you know, you guys are probably English, right? So um, I'm guessing both of you have like heavy English, right? <laughs> no, so, I actually have very little English. I'm mostly German. Okay. German, yeah, Bowman, that's right. That's right. Okay. I'm Polish. But, I'm a Pole. So oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was totally off. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I know. but I mean, if, like if, if someone wanted to do like ethnicity based upon genetics, like they would think that you got, that we wouldn't be able to get along. Like we'd, we'd look at each other and start fighting or something. But my, my point is that like, you have to think, uh, I mean, another thing that, that, that got me thinking about this is that remember when you go to a grocery store and there's like the ethnic line, it's like the, the aisles for ethnic, yep. like ethnic food. And yeah, you know, kids, you're like, okay, that's Hispanics and Asians. But then you're thinking, well, wh- why don't I have a certain ethnicity? Oh no, your ethnicity is like uh, 10% this and 10% that. It's like, no, I mean, that's, that's not, that's really not the case. So um so I was trying to say that, look, everyone has an ethnicity. You were ethnic in some regard. And I think we should think along those lines. So then people think, oh, well, you're just saying uh, it's white nationalism. Like uh, it's all about being um, a group of white people together. But that's actually not the case according to my own method. My own method is that you can sit down next to an Asian guy. I did this actually a few weeks ago. Um, I just met him. It was in Annapolis, Maryland. He and I went to a, a bourbon bar just after we, we were sm- after, after smoking like two cigars together <laughs> this long night, we went to a bourbon bar and drank. And here my t- I'm talking to a guy who's like hundred percent Japanese, but he's American. His parents have been here or his um, grandparents. I, I don't know. I forget his whole history, but, but he and I, uh, he, he's in the Navy um, and we had a lot to talk about and he loves Roger Scruton and, uh, and, so in terms of like, I know it's weird to think, well, he's a different ethnicity than me in terms of like genetics. He is. Yeah. But in terms of us, just as Americans, we are like in that sense, the same ethnicity. And so that's, that's the way I was approaching it. So yeah, you can, you can approach it from genetics. You can approach it from DNA, but me sitting next to this guy, this is where I, I get in trouble with the chemists. I mean, this is one of those really ironies. It's like, my two harshest critics are chemists and people who think I'm a chemist. Um, it's it's like literally the first people who criticized my book were chemists. Uh, I got like, uh, like not hateful messages, but I got messages from people like, oh, like you know, you're um, you sold uh, out. You're you're yeah. not a true Christian national. You're a civic nationalist. You're not ethno national. You're civic. It's like, yeah, I was like denounced by the chemists, the first people. And that's because um, I, I told a story of a fr- an Asian friend I had in when I lived in Louisiana, which I won't repeat now. But um, but uh, but but the, I, but the point is like it's it's um, we, this is why I this is why I was saying that like you have to approach the method. Like you have to yeah. think of it in terms of the method and not think right. too too much. And uh, like if you read even like Kevin DeYoung's recent review, it's it's frustrating again because I define ethnicity in admittedly a kind of a strange way. But then in the review, and he's not the only one in the review, he takes his own kind of like genetic DNA version and then applies yeah. it to me to criticize me, which I yeah. mean, I understand why that's happening, but it's just not, uh, it's not true. It, it's not, um, it's not using my own way yeah. of, of uh, presenting the term. And I and, think and is people- that why? Oh, go, uh, sorry, my question is, is that why his review and it seems like a number of these reviews keep the they keep calling this book the I don't know what it is. Michael, did you write this down? Something like, yeah, this verse woke like. Right. Um, so even I'll read. I just took his 
uh, the last, I think it was one of the last lines from Kevin DeYoung's, but a lot of people seem to be taking this as like the flip side of critical race theory, right? So he says, if critical race theory teaches that America has failed, that uh, the existing order is irredeemable, that Western liberalism was a mistake from the beginning, that the current system is rigged against our tribe, and that we ought to make ethnic consciousness more important, it seems to me that Wolf's project is the right-wing version of these same impulses. And that seems to be something that you know he puts it that particular way, but that seems a lot of people are saying a very similar thing, um, which when I read, I mean, I, I read, I haven't read the whole book, but when I read your definition of ethnicity, I thought, oh, this just makes sense. I don't know. It's like, just because it's focused more on these like cultural differences between people that all of us know exist. Um, and so it didn't, yeah, but everybody seems to be trying to put it within this well, context, right? I think what, what DeYoung is getting at is uh, it's something that I, so I'm not, I, I think that some of the criticisms of the West as think as thinking of itself as like the the universal as like the like we are the universal yep. and everyone ought to be in our image. Th this is yep. why we this is why we go to war. Like we are the only <laughs> like we are the only people um, or civilization. I don't know what Western like we're the only group of peoples who will spend uh, a, a decade and a half in a foreign country to make it democratic and liberal. Like, I mean, like Afghanistan, Iraq, I mean, you ask like, Hey, China, are you going to go invade uh, Saudi Arabia to, to make it um, liberal or something or something like to spread your ideals and all? No, no one else is going to do that. But because we have this universal conception of what yeah. all the good is, we have to actually invade and bomb and do all these things around the world. Um, so I, I think that when the left says things like that, I think they are kind of right. They are right that we have this deeply, like uh, we, we think that we have a conception of what is human and that the rest of the world should be like that. And we've been talking like this for a long, long time. So I agree with them on that. Uh, and, but then they think, oh, this must be like right-wing critical theory. Like is this, this is critical race theory, but for white people, which again, if you actually read what I'm saying, what, what I said, I, I don't, I, I, don't I don't make it a component a, a, a component of uh, I don't say ethnicity equals race or genetics, um, and, but I do say I, I will say that I think we should severely restrict immigration because I do think that if we if we have mass immigration we will never actually become um, or uh, we we will not be able to maintain and certainly there's ways that we splintered an actual people peoplehood of American nation because then you'll have like a sort of balkanized ethnic people here, ethnic people there. And then, and, and so that's why I think that uh, we've, we've had enough immigration over the last, um, you know, decades, we should stop it. And then from there, we should try to figure out who we are as a nation and go from there. Um, and so, and that means that, again, we have to think in a particular way, who are my people? And as I said, that Asian guy, I forget, his, what was his name? I only met him for a few hours and there was cigars and drinking involved, but, um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, and it was like two in the morning when he said goodbye, but uh, what was I saying now? Now I'm getting lost here. Oh yeah. But like, so that, that guy, like he, he's an American, I'm an American. I'd stand with him. I'd sit with him in the foxhole and shoot at the enemy. Um, yeah. We, we do that. So I, I don't want to, I, I just, because I, so I don't want to kick him out of my nation because he's not white. Um, I don't, so that, that's not what I'm, I'm saying at all. And I, I yep. think that, 
it's, it's very frustrating because I've said that several times. I've told stories like that several times across the different, um, uh, the, the different ways. And I, and so anyway, I'm rambling yeah. on, but I'll leave it. Yeah, I have a question, uh, just kind of in this regard, just cause I'm intrigued by it. So this is one of the things that makes me, I don't know. I mean, I I'm fairly sympathetic to at least some of the things that, you know, I've read from you and heard from you and whether it be in the book or, or, you know, on some other venues, you know, videos, what have you. And so I'm at least, I would at least put myself in the category of being very intrigued by all of this. Um, one of my concerns is even just along this lines, uh, that if a nation has to have some kind of cultural unity, um, which I think is true, I think it's at least fairly self-evident that when that's not there, it's, it's pretty disastrous, um, is, so I've brought up on this podcast several times, probably more than I need to. I'm just, it just comes up. Uh, but I read a book a couple of years ago by Colin Woodard called American Nations. Have you read this book? Um, where he basically talks about these within North America, uh, these various, what he kind of, I don't remember, he says maybe 11 different um, kind of cultural groups. Um, you know, so he's got, you know, Appalachia and he's got, you know, the the kind of, uh, you know, French Canadians and he's got, and he names them something else in all of this, right? He's got like the German farmers in the Midwest and he just goes through all these different groups. You know, he's got the Southwest and kind of Northern Mexico is one group. And it was really fascinating. And, you know, he even said that maybe these borders aren't exact, but like they're pretty distinct cultural groups and histories within these different places. And when I read it, it made me think, number one, I've seen this show up, at least in some ways, right? I, I meet people from other parts of the country, and we have a lot we agree on, right? There is obviously common connection, but at the same time, there is just wild difference at this, you know? Um, and so my question is just, is this actually feasible to have an American nation one whole, right? Like we are all, because there are very divergent, you know, cultural yeah groups yeah um i think there's there are ways that you can think of us as a a nation that borders on um like an empire in a way not not, i don't mean that a bad way we we always want to say empires are bad i don't i don't think an empire is necessarily bad but uh i think there is there, there might be a sort of empire uh, multinational aspect to America that is very unique relative to the other other nations, and that that's why that's why some of this ethnic thinking, like this, like what you know, the uh, young says, ethnic consciousness is actually very difficult. Um, I what's weird though is that in like in my experience, because I was in the military and spent a lot of time with people from across the. I went to West Point as well, so. I spent a lot of time with uh, at West Point. There's each each state is allotted a certain number of uh, like people to go to West Point. So it's very diverse with with regard to um, where people are from, like the states. So so you know like most like state schools people will go there is from that state, whereas West Point's from all across. So, but then but then you you realize after like talking like getting to know these people that we're all we all are are actually very very similar. So th- there's a sense in which we can say we have like a like there are American nations and then there's also an American nation because there's a, there's a like take take like Texans for example. There I'm not from Texas, but I I've always known many Texans in the military, 
And the interesting thing about Texans is they really, really like being from Texas. Like really like being from Texas. Shout out same, to all the listeners uh, in Texas yeah. right now. At the same time, Texans tend to want to join the military. The military is a federal force. It's a federal, it's a national, you know, it's a federal force. And they join the military and they wave, they wave, they wave the American flag and, and they fight on behalf of the, essentially the federal government. And, and so that they're, they, they can have this like simultaneous belonging to Texas and the belonging to the United States. Uh, and so I, I think there's something to say for like, um, just the complexity of the American nation and nationhood and nations. And it's something that I, that I, I admit that if someone reading the book, they, they, I was, I, I wasn't speaking, everyone thinks, well, he's an American. So he's talking about America when really I was just talking about, I think just general principles. Um, and then how that would come to apply to America is, I, I is admittedly challenging. Um, but, uh, but, but again, I, I think there, there are, there are events in, in, in American history that have served to unite people. So I, I recently, a few weeks ago, I read this, this essay by Theodore Roosevelt called the new nationalism. And in it, he, he says that, well, we need to come together uh, and uh, to, as a people who have fought the civil war, there's still veterans around that should have brought us together. We fought for freedom it was a continuation of the declaration of independence and this and that, and that brought us together as a people. And therefore, we should be progressives and have a new administrative state and all that. That's that's what we were talking about. Um, and then you, you jump along, and then you see the the World War II. World War II was this uniting event where your grandparents might have been involved, my grandparents involved, everyone's just kind of involved. And it was a, a, this event that brought us together as a nation, and it created a narrative. We defeated the Nazis. We're all about freedom around the world. This or that. Um, and that's kind of waned now. No one really cares anymore so much about that. Uh, so now we're at the point of country where we no longer have like this grand event that, you know, that, that we can look to that unites us as a people. And I think that's kind of splitting us apart. Um, or I, I don't know if we're splitting apart, but, it, but we don't have like a grand narrative anymore of look at what we did as a nation, as a national struggle. I mean, World War II was important because you still had a lot of people who were immigrants or like from immigrant families from Europe. And here they're all thrown together in these military units in France or, you know, some jungle in the Southeast Asia. And, and uh, then you get back and there's celebrations and now we're all Americans and look how great we are. So uh, we don't have that right now. Uh, and I, I don't know what the solution is, but there, there, there seems to me to, to have been like, we continually have like sort of ethnogenesis that happens in America while still, uh, having this co continuity, this historical continuity, yeah. but now it's we're at the point where we're rejecting the founding entirely. The founders were all racist. Um, every, everything prior to the Civil Rights Act was was racist. Even like you know, it's uh, so there's also it's just uh, we're, we're splitting apart, and so I don't know. That's um, so, I, I don't yeah. know where to go. That's very black pill, yeah. I guess the downer there. But but uh, no, nevertheless, but but it makes <laughs> sense if your understanding of nation and stuff if. If we're going to reject shared history, shared culture, shared values, if we're going to reject all of those things, there isn't really much to right. unite around. Um, Michael, do you, I have I have like two more questions. We want to uh, make sure we don't take too much of Stephen's time today. Do you want to ask? Uh, I know you said you've sourced some questions. Do you want to ask any others um, here? I 
I think um, just because some of them were very like in the weeds to some of the stuff in your book. And I don't think this is probably the time for that. Um, although some of them were interesting. Um, I'll ask one more question that we talked about asking. Um, and I think will just come up as people read your book is your method, as we kind of mentioned already, is not one that relies heavily on here's a text and verse from scripture, right? So you're not you're not developing uh, your political theory in a way that's, you know, exegeting the scripture. And I think that that will be strange to at least a lot of people. Um, I It seems like there's been, I don't know, a lot of different movements that have kind of, hey, we're going to start with these biblical principles or or just these biblical texts, and now we're going to apply those in some way to what what we need in our new political system. And so can you just explain why it is that, you know, your book quotes so little scripture, right? And it does make reference to it, right? I mean, I've I've already seen that in what little of it I have read. And so it's not as though it's without any, uh, you know, scripture or any thought in the scripture, but um, why is it that you decided to uh, go about this method this way? Okay. So I think that we would all up front agree that that uh, that Christians can assume things up front depending on what they're doing. Uh, I, I think everyone would be okay if I in the first page said that I am going to assume that the, the Trinity that the doctrine of the Trinity is true. I'm yeah. not going to prove it. I'm not going to use scripture to prove it. I'm just going to assume that. But I think everyone would be okay with that in principle. Yeah. Because I mean imagine <laughs> that'd be ridiculous. So um and and so uh what I did is I, I said, okay, there is a body of reformed thought that is in that is in the 16th to 17th century. And I'm going to just assume basically high reformed orthodoxy. I'm just going to assume that. Yeah. And and uh because I wanted I wanted the whole project to be an outgrowth of that system. And I say very upfront, I say, um, what what is like well, yeah, I say very upfront that if you're not reformed, then you may not agree with all my reasoning. I mean, you, you might still agree with the conclusions, but you may not actually agree with all my reasoning hmm. um, because I'm making these assumptions. <clears throat> um, I also say directly that I'm not taking from Scripture because uh, that, that's what the, theologians are trained to go from Scripture to doctrine. And those are two different things in a way. You know, you you have doctrinal statements like the Trinity, like the Trinity is a doctrinal statement. Um, that you derive from scripture. So I just was say, I, I just said, okay, you have these guys from 15, uh, 16th, 17th century of Calvin, Turton, uh, Vermeule, um, Junius, um, Zanke. You have all these guys who, who said these things. And so I'm just going to kind of assume uh, their, as I understood their formulations um, and, and work from there. And if I had to prove all those with scripture, I mean, one of the, one of the problems with like proof texting with scripture is that there's a lot of doctrines that were developed, like even like the Trinity. Like if I had, it, it's not developed from a proof text. It's developed from the totality of Scripture plus applying reason, system, uh, and coherence to uh, a question. So what is it? What is like? What is or who is God? Like that that question. Like how do you? Uh, that that is not merely proof texting or exegesis. It's also applying a systematic, coherent, rational you know, like non-contradict, like axioms of reason yep. to the, to the question. Um, and so if I said, I'm taking this doctrine, and then I put a scripture verse next to it. Well, that wouldn't prove it most likely. And then, yes. then I would raise disputes over, over what's well, proven scripture. Yep. And I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to assume it. 
Yeah. And if you don't agree, then you don't agree. Um, and you wouldn't be able to get anywhere if you didn't, right? Like we all, yeah. like you said, we all do this to a certain extent, but I've thought about this with, you know, creeds and confessions and using the historic confessions and things like that. Um, when, you know, people question it along the lines of, well, why don't you just use the Bible or something like that? One of the things I've said is that creeds, confessions, these are like one of the ways that you can actually build something because it's like a tool, right? Like you take all of the force of scripture and you kind of point it in a particular direction, kind of like a hammer does, you know, it takes all of the energy from your arm as you swing it and it puts it on one particular point. So like the confessions have already done that. Um, and if we just assume them, then um, these are now tools where you can actually build far more than you would be able to otherwise, because if you didn't assume them, you, you'd have to start all over every time, right? You'd have to start this book on, you know, a Christian political theory in, well, let's exegete every passage of scripture. Let's talk about every detail of that. Let's debate every argument that would come from that. And you just actually can't build, you can't get anywhere with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that I mean, just take, there's the argument that like some Brian Matson would take and everyone thinks it's like a devastating review, which when I read it, I thought it was interesting, but just entirely wrong. Um, because the, 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 like a lot of neo-Calvinists, uh, like people who think they're following Bavink, they, um, they, they, they reject the dualisms. They don't like the dualisms of nature and grace and supernatural and natural and, um, heaven and earth and, uh, sacred secular they don't like these these dualisms and and uh they're they're very like they're they're self they're, they're interested in their neo-calvinism not being too neo <laughs> you know it can't be too neo um is then they're entirely divorced from the tradition so there there's this uh personal investment in this idea that no wait you know the 16th and 17th centuries were actually very diverse and some rejected the dualisms and some didn't um but that's just that's just false. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, everyone affirmed a difference between like heaven and earth, sacred, secular, supernatural, natural. Um, everyone affirm, affirm this. And, uh, I mean, eventually I'll get a review out, uh, like a response to the reviews, but to, to my mind, uh, in within chapter one and two, I affirm at least the majority, if not the received positions of high reformed orthodoxy, and uh, you can disagree with, I'm not saying that you have to disagree. I'm saying, but then that means you have to disagree with Turretin, like the greatest of reformed uh, theologians. So we've had, you have to disagree with them, which again is fine, but I'm just, as a political theorist, who's trying to do reform political theory, I'm just going to assume the greatest theologians of all time <laughs> um, so, and run with it. So that's, yeah. L let me ask you then a very brief, you know, another segment of our audience is going to be, um, uh, we love our TR friends, right? confessional presbyterians do you consider um speaking of the reform tradition your political theory to basically be in agreement with the westminster confession of faith um and i guess we should say the american revision because that's the one uh michael has said he takes no exceptions to do would you do you basically um do you think you basically fall in line with what the westminster divines um yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I'd say that, uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I think that that the way I present to kingdom theology is actually is consistent with uh, Westminster Confession. Yeah, the the well, I'm the original, not the not the American version, but the 
Uh, when it says like the, the visible church is the kingdom of Christ, uh, that's something Anglicans reject. And I think that a lot of people who think they're following like classic two, two kings theology, which they are, it's really probably more of a hook, like a hooker, like a Richard hooker, um, Anglican view. And, but my, my view, as I present in the book is, as I understand it, a, a more Presbyterian view that actually fits better with the Westminster, Con- uh, better. It, it fits better with the mess Westminster confession than, um, the Anglican versions. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was a, yeah, it is a question that I know I was going to get asked if I didn't ask you. And so I think it's, <laughs> it's an important one. Um, so let me, let me ask you the, the question I that I had to ask, we can come back to it. And we would really appreciative of the time. Again, there's, we had lots of in the weeds questions about all the ways the prelapsarian state should affect <laughs> our understanding of things, but you know, things yeah. that in a more broad interview, right? If we had a Joe Rogan amount of time, certainly we could have yeah. asked you about, but the, here's my final question. So even let's say I'm even convinced I'm with you, whatever, 95, 98%. The, I think the question for a lot of people at the end of the day is, I mean, you know, sounds great, man, but I don't think that's what, I don't think that's where we're at, right? I think we're, we're not going back to this. If this ever existed, we're not going back to this. And so that this, even, even in a, and I, and I don't want to read it in like a, I don't want to present that kind of critic in a totally like they're just being unreasonable. Even if they say in prudential Christian action, is this really what we can even, what we should be talking about or, or thinking about? And so, and I know you sort of address this at the end of your book with your, your section where you ask, is America lost? So that, but that's my question. Is this, you know, you know, is this, is this a theory that can ever be brought into, into real life in the West today? Yeah. I, I do say, I do say in the, in the last chapter, in, the, in kind of the beginning, I say that, um, that it's, it's mainly a book of theory. Uh, and, and the, I, I think I said something like it probably frustrates people that I didn't do more practical ideas in there. Like, what do you do? And I, I completely understand that. Um, uh, I mean, I am, I am a political theorist, <laughs> not a, uh, not a politician, uh, but I don't want to, that's not, that's kind of a cop out, but yeah, I, I, it, this is a very challenging question because I don't, I, I don't want to say take up arms and fight, you know, like that, that's, that's not what um, that, even if I thought we should do that, it probably wouldn't work anyway um, and be destructive. But uh, I, I mean, I do offer some suggestions that, that are more personal in, in, the, in the conclusion uh, where I say that we should certainly um, get to know who our friends are, uh, especially locally. And because th- things do change very rapidly. Uh, one of the things that we... We've been, in a way, privileged in in America for for having uh, a stability on our little part of the world for a long time. I mean, I know there's been some unstable times in place, different places, but in general, we've been actually fairly stable since, um, correct me if I'm wrong, since like the Civil War, right? I mean, um, again, there's been disturbances and all that, but riots and but we take we take uh, for granted that 
uh, I, I mean, we, we forget that, that things can actually rapidly change and we have to wonder, well, what do we do in those moments when things are rapidly changing and breaking down? And, uh, and, and everyone is actually concerned about something like that happening. I'm not sure how it would happen, but at the very least, we should be uh, prepared for that sort of thing to know well, what, what's next. And, uh, um, and, and, and I, and I, Part of it is just kind of getting our minds, our minds right for what, uh, what we would do, what we'd have to do. Um, so I know, I know that's kind of a cop-out answer. <laughs> like, what do I do now? Um, I, well, let me just say, I think in the near future, we should, we should encourage our kids to have as much independence as possible so that they can make a living without having to de- depend upon like the demeaning workplaces that make them have to hate themselves and be silent. And so that we should seek independence for our children as much as possible. I, I remember before I went to grad school, this one old, this old crusty guy, I was like, I'm going to grad school. And he's, and he's like, Oh, you shouldn't do that. It's like, well, what, what should I do instead? He's like, you should just become a lawnmower repairman. <laughs> um, and then, you know, a few months later, I'm at LSU in grad school, but there was some wisdom in that. I mean, not, I want to repair lawnmowers, but there's wisdom in that because it's like, yeah, I mean, if you can repair lawnmowers, everyone needs a lawnmower and you can be that guy making money repairing lawnmowers. I don't think there's much money repairing lawnmowers, but, but you get my point, right? So you have this independent, so yeah, I'm rambling on about these things, but I, I guess the broad, the broad answer is I just, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I do offer some ways for us to try to move forward in the future. Because obviously uh, we don't have the sort of unity around the country to fight back and to, and to kind of establish a new sort of order. Uh, but again, things change rapidly. Uh, I, the, the people in the 17, early 1770s probably didn't dream that in five, six years, they'd be fighting a war against England and they'd be declaring independence from England. And then 15 years, well, 10 years after that, well, no. You know, a few years after that, they'd be establishing their own government apart from England and uh, becoming their own country. So things happen rapidly. A big thank you for Stephen Wolf for coming on the show and discussing his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. You can find it wherever fine books are sold, and you can find a review of it probably on whatever Christian website you like to peruse. It is the talk of the town. So we are glad we got to speak to the author ourselves. Uh, Thank you to our patrons who support the show. Please rate and review this show with five stars and get ready for the 12 Days of Restless starting after Christmas this year. Later! Later!